0: Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Rudy Marchese is the chairman of the board of directors for Demeter USA, the national biodynamic certifying organization for all biodynamic agriculture. Rudy is also a managing partner for Montanor Estate. Montanore is based in the Willamette Valley in Oregon and is one of the largest biodynamic wineries in the nation, growing classic Pinot Noir, as well as some Italian varieties that are not as common in Oregon at all. In this interview, Rudy gives us a great overview of the history and benefits of practicing biodynamic viticulture. Those benefits extend to biology and economics of growing wine, but also the taste of the resulting wine which he gets into he talks about practicing biodynamics at both a micro vineyard as well as at a large estate like montenor we also touch on what it means to have your vineyards versus your winery certified how biodynamic certification compares to organic certification and how demeter incorporates new scientific knowledge into its regulations if you've drank a biodynamic wine or heard about biodynamics and wondered what it entails Or if you think you know about it and have your doubts, this interview may be just the thing for you. A big thanks to Rudy for taking the time to lay out an articulate and well-argued case for biodynamics. And thank you for listening. Enjoy! The sponsor for today's episode is Centralis Wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine. You can learn more about Centralis at centraliswine.com and full disclosure, Centralis is my winery. I started Centralis because I noticed a disconnect between the values that many wine drinkers have and the kinds of wine they choose to drink. I wanted to give those of you who love wine an option to buy wine that reflects your values. So Centralis is built on two pillars. The first is that Centralis wine will always be made with, at minimum, organically grown grapes. And the second is that we will always tell you every ingredient that was added during winemaking. Our first vintage will be released very soon. In fact, it may be available by the time you hear this. And it's pretty limited. So if you want to get some, please go to our website, centraliswine.com, and sign up for our wine list. Or go ahead and buy wine. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-WINE.COM We're also on Instagram, at centraliswine, and I can't wait to share our wines with you. Uh, Rudy, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on the show. You are. Can you tell us what your official capacity is? And let let me start with a fun question: Is it Demeter or Demeter?
1: Well, in in Europe, you know, Demeter is the Greek goddess of agriculture. Uh, so in Europe they say Demeter a lot, but some people say Demeter here in the U.S. we say Demeter, and I don't know why, but that's that's the pronunciation we use.
0: <laughs> Great. And what's your role with them?
1: I'm uh, chairman of the board of directors, or and president, I guess. I mean, we're not big on titles, but
0: got it. Okay. And you also though are involved with the Montanora State Winery in Oregon. Um, what's your capacity there?
1: Um. Well, I was sole proprietor for many years. And then I joined up with uh, some folks from Seattle that, that brought a lot to the table of allowing us to grow into the 21st century and all that. So now I'm a, a partner at Montanor and managing partner here.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit more about it. Tell me about Montenor. How many How many acres are you growing?
1: Well, and where are you located? There's a lot going on. We're in the northern Willamette Valley um, of Oregon, and um, we have about 180 plus acres at our home site where the winery currently is. We have, and that's up in the newly formed Tualatin Hills AVA in the northwest corner of the valley. And yeah, that just we saw also,
0: that got AVA status. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We just got that after a long haul, myself and Alfredo Apolloni. Uh, um, worked on that for years, actually. But um,
0: that's great.
1: Then we also have a 30-acre vineyard in uh, the western portion of the Yamhill-Carlton district. It's a very exciting uh, site. Um, and then we have a newly purchased piece of property, a little further east in the Yamhill-Carlton district, that uh, we we have planted another 25 acres on, and we'll add another 70 to 75 acres there in the next year year and a half something like that so
0: got it and if i'm correct with my my avas in the willamette valley twilight is now right on top of Yamhill carlton right at the, exactly. the northeast corner yep. right
1: yep. it's northeast northwest corner and uh, just northwest yeah yeah right.
0: now are you farming biodynamically on all those parcels
1: oh yeah Okay. Yeah, you know, from in the new parcel from the very start, um, we started treating the the bare land with biodynamic preps before we even started putting vines in. Dipped all the roots in in biodynamic soup, if you will. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah, so we're we're going full full tilt on um, taking the most advantage of biodynamic uh, practices from the start.
0: Right on. So. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people, I, I mean, I think currently I'm seeing a lot of people transitioning to organic and biodynamic, but I love that you have with with the, your new things that you just right <laughs> off the bat going into that. Yeah. Um, is that a change that you've seen in the industry, this trend towards biodynamics and organics and, and viticulture?
1: Clearly, um, it's somewhat unfocused, but everyone has the same notion. Um, You know, I don't see everyone flocking to biodynamics uh, or organic or they go to tangential uh, practices like live. We have in Oregon, Washington, low impact viticulture, knowledge certification and then kind of uh, organic light things like salmon safe and stuff like that. But it's all moving in the same direction. And I think there's a. a perception, an an awakening, let's call it that, that um, there's a lot more going on in the soil on our farms that we're not only not taking advantage of, but disrupting that works counter to our goals. So Mm -hmm. people are starting to pay attention to what's going on and looking to change their practices from conventional chemical farming, which is very disruptive, to more uh, sustainable, uh, non-disruptive,
0: practically (laughs) i i'd love to dig into that what are those things that we're learning i mean what are the you know generally speaking what are what are those new things that people are starting
1: to realize well i'll I'll give you a quick story um about how biodynamics got started so at the end of world war one there were a lot of munitions factories that closed down for good reason and um Some German scientists, one in particular, von Liebig, discovered he was analyzing plant nutrition and and understood that nitrogen was a basic and fundamental source of nutrition for plants. And he figured out how to turn these munitions factories, which use uh, saltpeter, which is a, a nitrogen type compound, switch them to making nitrogen fertilizer so it became readily available and cheap and farmers like jumped all over it you know because it was so easy and um and it was cheap and they had great success for the first few years but when you put nitrogen fertilizer on the ground it starts killing off the, the fungi the bacteria all the microorganisms either get killed off or weakened and what that does is starts to deteriorate the cycle of life um or as some people call the soil food web um that creates what we would think of as natural fertility so after about four or five years of this they found they needed more and more of this chemical fertilizer and and they found also that the the quality of their seed wasn't as good they weren't getting the same rate of germination their livestock wasn't as healthy and the whole general vitality of the farms diminished and that's when these this group of farmers went to Rudolf Steiner and asked for help and he created uh, the biodynamic practices that we now know as biodynamic farming so it came out of this disruption of of the the native natural life cycle in the soil that provides us literally natural fertility
0: and i think it's interesting that that disruption was caused by people trying to fertilize the soil (laughs) yeah right Uh, i i've actually recently did an interview with somebody who you know made the claim that without those chemical fertilizers we wouldn't have been able to grow agriculture to what it is today and we wouldn't be able to you know feed the world the seven and a half billion people and growing that we have now obviously i feel like the the idea for biodynamics and organics are the dream, like the imagine song that we would sing, would be that one day all all farms would be biodynamic or organic. Is that an incorrect understanding?
1: No, it's not. And and I'd like to respond to that. You know, we wouldn't be able to to feed the seven billion people or whatever it is. So we we have to. Yeah, we're I just would have, love you to
0: respond to that. <laughs> yeah,
1: there's just we're at a point in time. You know, this isn't the end all. Um, and this is a this is an evolution that we're witnessing in the world of agriculture. And since you know World War II, the Green Revolution, quote unquote, you know we've embraced this chemical farming, and we've seen some of the same uh, trends that they saw back at the beginning of the 20th century, where needing more and more inputs as they call them, you know fertilization things and weed killers and what, and um, to to sustain that growth of of uh, output you know yeah we've increased the output but how long is this going to keep going on what we see and what we know is that we're losing um we're losing soil fertility native fertility we're losing topsoil because the organic matter gets depleted and the, the the soil runs off you know and if you're just one of those hardcore chemical guys you're not worried about keeping your soil covered in the winter and you, and you lose a lot of the topsoil. And uh, there's just a lot of trends that point to the non-sustainability of these practices. And if you look at some some of the smart minds in the USDA, they're starting to encourage people to, to cover crop, not to till, to uh, to roll in and, and get organic matter back into the soil, they're starting to recognize that if we don't take care of life in the soil, um, it, it's not going to take care of us. And this, this <laughs> rate of production is not feasible. And this is a really... 180 degree view from when I was a young farmer and someone from one of the land grant universities talked to me about starting my vineyard. He said, you realize that in modern agriculture, the function of the soil is simply to hold up the plant. We can do everything else with chemistry. Now, that was how they looked at it, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And uh, and there's there's starting to be a very encouraging reversal, even in the conventional farming world. So I think we're at this point in time, we're at a tipping point, because there's a lot of farmers, you know, conventional farmers claiming, man, my profits are being diminished. You know, I still have to get two, 250 bushels of corn an acre to make a living, but my costs are going up and up because I need more, you know, chemical fertilizers, Roundup doesn't kill the pigweed anymore, and so on and so forth. So it's it's really not a sustainable method. And that's why people are starting to turn towards initially just sustainable farming and then taking it a step further to how do you maximize yields in a sustainable way. And that, that's the big and exciting question. Are there
0: diminished yields when you're doing biodynamics and organics? Is that just a, something that we come to terms with or how, I mean, I've heard that as an argument as well, that, you know, you're losing 10% or 20% of the yield when doing organic versus conventional.
1: Well, you may, um, you know, if you start with, a, um, and not, you may in the first few years, let me, let me clean that up. Um, If you start with a farm that's been dependent on chemical fertilization and using a lot of herbicides and whatnot, you know, it's depleted from a from a natural vitality life form in the soil point of view. It's depleted. So to bring that back, it doesn't. It's just not like you flip a switch, you dump a bunch of compost on, and all of a sudden you're off and running. It's something that you have to rebuild this living cycle of fertility, and you have to bring it back to life and bring it back to health and then bring it up in volume to heat, hit, hit those yields. So yeah, there's a transition period. And that's why in Demeter certification, we, we have a three year certification, uh, waiting period. Um, so that, you know, before you can get certified. Um, but in so our, that's a,
0: in, th- just to clarify, that's a three year period where you're, you're practicing organic, uh, principles right. and practices on the the farm and and but it you can't yet be certified. The very yeah. similar to organic, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: So there could be dips in uh, in in output. You know, we didn't really see that. Um, we hit it hard when we transitioned from conventional to organic back in two thousand one. And then biodynamic in 2003, uh, a lot of compost, a lot of biodynamic preps, a lot of extra sprays of this and that and the other thing, just to bump up the fertility. So we never saw drops in yields, um, and but we what we did see is after about five or six years, uh, increase in vine health, uh, increase in uniformity of ripening, um, you know, enhancement in broader flavor profiles in the wine. So it's a process and you're building mm-hmm. a living system and that just takes a while. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And and you know, obviously this is the organic wine podcast. I uh, I'm sympathetic to what <laughs> to everything that you're talking about. I just like to ask the hard questions because sure. these are the these are the, you know, arguments that I hear and I, I I want to address them and I know that other people want to hear the other side of the story as well. Um, and like you said, it's part of, I think a growing revolution in agriculture that's happening right now. Um, but you brought up some, uh, some, so you started to detail some of the things that go into organic and biodynamic and how they're different. You're talking about the preps and things like that. I wonder, could you give us a little biodynamics 101 and you know, what, what the requirements are and how that is similar and different from organic?
1: Sure. Um, In order to be certified biodynamic, you you need to qualify as organic to begin with. So think of it as organic certification is what you don't do and what you don't put on. And biodynamics is a whole extra layer of activity on top of that. So, for example, with biodynamic, uh, with organic certification, there's a, a list of inputs that you can use for fertilization or pest control or whatever that are reviewed by the Organic Materials Registry Institute, OMRI for short. And you have to stick to that list of materials and let them know what you're going to use at the beginning of the year. And that does not include hot fertilizers, it does not include uh, poisonous insecticides or. Um, you know, herbicides like Roundup or systemic, uh, uh, not systemic, you know, the ones that go in the ground. I don't It's been so long since I used them. The one that sterilizes the seeds, uh, it'll come back. Yeah. To... Anyway, you, you can't use any of that stuff for starters. So organic, um, you know, you, you use compost, you do things for fertility. You You find other ways that are going to enrich your soil and to get the same effect. Uh, and better effect actually in the long run. With biodynamics, we have a tool chest that is not available to organic growers. I mean, it's certainly available, but they don't take advantage of it. And these are the things that were uh, given to us um, in the agricultural course almost a hundred years ago now. And they include a very um, specifically created composts and teas and the timing of use of those that um, that really advance this process that I'm describing. So, for example, we look at the farm as a as a complete whole living entity. You know, above ground, below ground. We do specific things to enhance the activity below ground. Uh, we have um, a spray called BD500 that's made. Uh, from composted cow manure in a very specific way that we spray on the ground in the spring and then in the late fall that stimulates not only root activity but is acts I think of it as like a signaling molecule to all the organisms in the soil to like oh wake up it's time to get to work. We also have sprays that we that we spray on the canopy in our case of the vines or for garden you know on the leaves of the of the plants you're growing that help to enhance the effect of photosynthesis and light absorption and messaging you know and then we have other things that we use and we make compost piles tons and tons of compost every year and we put specific um starter composts in them made from very common things that you can find around the farm, like chamomile or nettle or yarrow or oak bark. And they help to build the levels of a broad array of nutrients that your plants are going to need. So your composts come out you know, very uh, very rich and very uh, broad spectrum in terms of their, their nutritional value. So these are things you have to do you have to insert into your farming program but they really benefit the whole the whole uh, operation once you get that those things incorporated into your practices
0: Gotcha In terms of uh, different kinds of vineyards and places that you could practice biodynamics or organics would it be difficult it sounds like it promotes the idea of the opposite of monoculture it's you know you you yeah. need a whole living system. So what what if you're in Napa Valley and you own 10-acre parcel that you want to plant full of vines and it's right up against other, you know, 20-acre parcels and 100-acre parcels that are full of vines? Is it impossible to do biodynamic with your little 10 acres there? Or can you do it in, in an adapted way? Like, how does that how does that work?
1: It, it amazingly works. As a matter of fact, I've been on a 10-acre <laughs> parcel uh, surrounded by... Uh, vineyards owned by consolation brands and just yeah. walking across the fence line you know 100 feet in and just putting a shovel in the soil you could see dramatic differences it even wow. works and this is a real head scratcher but you know i, I remember visiting a uh, a producer in Volnay, and uh, and they had 40 rows you know i don't know if right. Volnay.
0: yeah burgundy it's like you you get to farm <laughs> like a Part of a block, basically. yeah, right, like
1: and you can three see-
0: rows is how you make right. your wine.
1: I was there right as they were harvesting and walking around with the owner, and you know, then they he said, I got to get back to work. I said, Okay, so I just walked around, you know, and looked at acres and acres of vines, and I could come back and see where his vines rose started they just had a different luster a different color a different gesture you know so you can even do it on a small scale like that well you know there's there's something that that goes on and i'd like to give you a specific example um because we can talk about this all about farming but i'm a wine guy you're a wine guy it all depends yeah. you know, the, what what we care about really is what ends up in the glass you know
0: <laughs> absolutely
1: and there's something that that I think is really interesting in biodynamic farming that uh, that relates to the concept of terroir. And what that is is, you know, when we do um, this work on enhancing the uh, the microorganisms in the soil, one of those is a is a fungi family called mycorrhizal fungi. And without yeah. getting into too much detail, what they do is they they, uh, they, they can get really big. They can get you know tens, hundreds of acres in size if they're left undisturbed. And they interact physically with the roots of the vines by inserting their little tendrils into the root hairs. And then there's a physical exchange between the fungi and the, and the vines. And they, they bring up mineral-rich soil because they can dissolve the minerals in soil with enzymes because they're fungi. And they bring up and broaden the nutrient pool They also have this capacity of acting as a um, kind of like an internet because all of these all of these vines now all become connected to the same organism or group of organisms that we know as mycorrhizal fungi and they literally share nutrients and they it balances out what's going on in the vineyard and it's really remarkable to see we saw this it sort of take effect at about year four or five after we converted to, to BD. Um, we had a lot of trouble with big vines, little vines, you know, uneven growth, uh, great uh, rates of growth and lots of hedging. And then at, at, uh, at the same time, we would see um, uneven ripening. So you'd have green clusters when others were turning red and a lot of inconsistencies. But once they sort of settled into this network of uh, relationship with the, the mycorrhizal, all of a sudden the vines started falling into a pattern of uniformity of growth. And we saw that the color change was much more consistent and timely. And then when we started analyzing uh, fruit that harvest, we had a much more consistent ripening rate and, and state of ripeness in the fruit we got. And it was all because uh, we've kind of integrated the vines into the into the community, um, to the base the soil base that they live in and created in effect uh, like a community of vines rather than a stand of thousands of vines st- standing next to each other and i think about okay. this in the concept of terroir because now we have a physical connection of actual physical connection not only from the roots of the vines but through the organisms in the soil to the place where this 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 wine is coming from and yeah. uh, You know, we we saw an evolution in the character of our wines, how they became more expressive and and characteristics came out that were not there before. And they become a consistent marker of our wines from this part of the valley. And I attribute that all to this this physical, healthy connection between our vines and the microorganisms in the soil and the soil itself. So to me, I find that really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, a little background about me. I actually used to grow fungi um, at one mm-hmm. point in my life, so a big mycophile myself. And I, I, I'm curious. Do you have to inoculate your vineyard for that mycorrhizal fungi, or is it something that you just create the right environment and the natural spores will germinate and propagate throughout the vineyard?
1: Well, that, that's a good debate. Um, okay, you know, <laughs> what we did. Inoculate, but I've heard from people who I believe, um, researchers, that they say it's there. And really, you just need to create the, the right environment for them to flourish. Um, you know, they, they need carbon. That's what fungi live on. So you have to put the right kind of compost down to put carbon in the soil to keep those populations going. There's also um, a company in New Zealand years ago, they're they trying to combat um, phylloxera. And they discovered that the mycorrhiza colonize around the roots of the vines, but they need to wake up and and become active. And they they synthesize the signaling molecule that um, that really got the fun, the mycorrhizal fungi to wake up and become more active in the root zone. So there's a, there's a lot going on there. We I feel like our biodynamic sprays on the soil uh, work in that way as well. And as a side note, we've had phylloxera on our vineyard since nineteen ninety eight and still farming most of it to full size crops. I mean, we've lost some patches where the soil was real thin, but we have, you know, vineyards now that are you know that have had phylloxera for almost thirty years. Um,
0: are these own rooted?
1: Cool. Yeah, own-rooted, yeah.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I've heard that um, I know Mimi Castile sort of embarked on that experiment at bethel heights as well so I, i've i've definitely heard of that happening yeah uh, before mm-hmm. um yeah so we talked a little bit about small using biodynamics in a small area now what are the challenges you guys have a pretty big vineyard um does that are you the you know are there bigger vineyards that are practicing biodynamics like what's what's the scale that is average and are you on the bigger end or, and, and what are the challenges and of that going, going to large scale and biodynamics?
1: You know, I don't pay a lot of attention to stats, but I'd say we're um, probably in the top five in the world in terms of size. Yeah. Of that was um, my
0: sense as well.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was, um it was a challenge, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, Get to do this on a larger scale you know we always think of biodynamics as a small guy with a barrel and he's stirring it around he goes around with a paintbrush <laughs> spreads it around but you know if you look at the work of alex Podolinsky, who just passed away in uh in australia um working on tens of thousands of acres of ranch land spraying biodynamic sprays from airplanes you know so you can really scale it up uh, in our case it oh, just wow. meant um figuring out how to do the things that we needed to do and do them well. Uh, you know, we needed to be able to spread a lot of compost. And fortunately, you know, we built a good compost spreader. Now we bought an even better one that can deliver, uh, off to the side and we can directly put great compost right underneath the vine rows. Um, stirring is really an important part, you know, getting these teas and sprays stirred and in solution, if you will. Um, yeah, that needs to be done in a very specific way. So, you know, we built a stirring machine that would do 300 gallons at a time. And I bought just recently bought another one that, that does the same thing. So we can uh, take, take away (laughs) the need for a guy in a barrel and a broomstick, you know, to mechanizing it, but still get the same effect. So it just takes being smart about it. You know, we did classes for our whole, um, our whole vineyard crew so they would understand, you know, what we were trying to get at instead of us just saying, okay, go do this, you know, and they understood the the practices to a degree and the end goal and embraced it. And it just made the transition so much easier. So it just takes a little forethought, um, but it's very doable to get it on a large scale. And are both
0: your vineyards and your winery certified? Yes, and so what does that mean for the winery, for your winemaking, what you can and can't do?
1: Well, it's kind of like what you can and can't do in the vineyard, you know. Uh, a lot of winemakers love to use uh, DAP or diammonium phosphate, and it's kind of like a, a fertilizer for yeast. But it's a yeah. chemical fertilizer, you know, and it has side effects, and can, and can, you know, it's not the greatest thing to put in your wine. So we, we can't yeah. do things like that, you know. We can't use copper in the wine, we can't use (coughs) other compounds. We also um, are very proactive on the quality side from the Demeter standards. Certain types of pumps are not allowed, pumps that would cavitate and sort of churn up the wine as they move around because we recognize that it beats up the wine. It also uh, necessitates larger amounts of sulfur being needed to keep the wine stable. And we want to be sure that that's not the case, because the Demeter standards for added sulfur are um, much lower than what's allowed by the federal government. So, in order to achieve that, you have to be very gentle and very mindful of uh, how you move the wine and how the wine is kept, and you know how it's handled during fermentation and maturation. So, there's a lot of um, a lot of detail and nuance. practices that don't sound like a lot but they all they all relate to um this this concept of really having minimal intervention if you will it's different yeah. than natural wine where you just let her rip you know i've had more, <laughs> more bad natural wine that i ever care to remember but it does it does kind of um We don't want to overwork the wine. We want to let the process, it's a natural process, just like the grapes growing is a natural process. And we want to allow that to proceed in the healthiest, most vital way it can without disruption.
0: And what is the limit to sulfur, the like parts per million that you can add?
1: Total parts per million, which is different than free. Total parts per million is uh, 100 parts per million. That's the max.
0: Yeah. That's similar to organic, made with organic grapes uh, yeah. designation, it's, right? It's the same, uh, and that's
1: a U.S. standard. And internationally, they allow a little bit more. In the U.S., we tried to um, have some simpatico with the the organic standards when they first came okay. out. So that's how that, ended that way, yeah.
0: Great, and so and just in the winemaking, you're you you're not adding yeast, correct? So, so no malolactic inoculation, no f- yeast inoculation. It's all native microbes, right?
1: No, not right.
0: Um, not right, okay.
1: Uh, yeah, we're prohibited from using yeasts that, um, that are designed to enhance aromatics and things like this, you know, that are going <laughs> to try to mimic something else. Um, Got it. We Yeah, we're encouraged to use uh, our, our ambient yeasts. Our native yeasts, and you know, in our winery, we collect those yeasts every year when we're doing fruit sampling, and propagate them in small containers uh, in the winery, and evaluate them. Um, you know, at any point from September on, the hallway outside the lab might have 20 or 30 jugs, you know, fermenting away, and we wow. we, we just make sure that. There's no off odors that they're active and they look like good, healthy yeasts And then we'll take those starters and inoculate um, the fruit when it comes in with those starters. So that's the majority of um, of what we do. There are some other yeasts that that um, we know act better and will finish better with uh, with uh, certain grape varieties. So we might add that in as well. But for the most part, we're using what we get out of the vineyard.
0: Got it. So, but it does allow for, if you, for example, had a stuck fermentation, you're not just screwed. Like you can, right. you can inoculate with something to help it along to the end.
1: Absolutely. And it used to oh. be a little more strict. Uh, I mean, obstructive, you know, we would have to send in a letter and ask permission. Well, we don't do that anymore. We're, <laughs> we're pretty practical, but we just, we do review uh, everyone's records annually to make sure that they're adhering to the standards.
0: Well, that brings up a good point. Uh, you know, knowledge as we know is always changing and expanding and hopefully improving um, and I'm guessing that you know we'll figure out new things about agriculture and viticulture as we go along are there processes in Demeter to allow for that those changes for new discoveries and incorporating uh, things that might overturn previously held tenets of biodynamics
1: well there are you know there's some people that are very uh, conservative and they said you know it's black and white and this is the only thing it can do but Rudolf Steiner uh, actually would kid some of his followers or tease them saying oh yeah you just you know because I said you put on your pants uh left leg first right leg second you've created a cult for pants putter honors you know use your head <laughs> you know <laughs> this is a, what he was saying to paraphrase this is a, a living process and he was a very he very big believer in science and thinking. And he wanted us to take this as sort of a, a, a basic standard to work off of. So uh, within the international bike that community, there is a lot of research and people working with things. And, um, you know, we experiment on our farm trying to, to get the most out of these practices. And, you know, for example, we had one vineyard that gave us a lot of green notes in our pinot and you know it was okay but it wasn't exactly what we were looking for we wanted some more riper fruit and we couldn't seem to get there um regardless of the vintage and then a friend of mine from italy who was working with bell pepper growers who want the really ripe sweet red bell peppers you know every time for roasting peppers said that they yeah. would use multiple sprays of our uh, bd501 which is the spray that enhances the sunlight uh, activity so yeah. we tried that out in in uh, September, did three sprays from Labor Day to Harvest, and sure enough that we got a lot more fruit character and the that green quality turned into a lightly pleasant herbal note. And we've we've repeated that and had the same effects. So these tools are powerful and we just need wow. to get creative and think of how how can we use them in, in more and better ways to to fine-tune our practices. And of course, being in the wine world what product is more highly scrutinized than wine You know, so we're, we're at the forefront of this
0: so and I like the story that you told about um, Steiner and his uh, pants pants putter on her <laughs> followers but and I know you know biodynamics gets criticism from certain people in certain areas because it has these elements that are I don't know a little more like the most generous way I can put it is we don't quite understand why they work, kind right. of thing. And and so there's a there's an old joke you've probably heard about a woman who was talking to her friend and her friend asks about her marriage and she says it's it's terrible. My husband thinks he's a chicken. And her friend says really? And she says yeah yeah he goes around eating corn off the ground all day, clucking, scratching at night he roosts in the barn. And her friend says wow that's terrible. Uh, why haven't you taken him to a hospital? See if you can get him some psychiatric help. And the woman says, well, the eggs are delicious. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and I'm wondering if there's a little, like, is there an element of faith to biodynamics? Is there a bit of like, I don't know. I know it sounds a little crazy. We're not exactly sure why it works, but the wine is delicious kind of thing.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I will never pretend. um, (laughs) I understand how this stuff works. And I got into this because I'm a wine grower, and I wanted the best quality I could. And I experienced tasting wines that uh, were biodynamic, and there was a certain quality that I really admired. So I said, well, if it's working for them, I'll give it a try. And what I've, you know, that's been out almost 20 years now. And um, what I can say is that these practices really work. They work in ways that enhances quality they work in ways that bring out characteristics that are uh i think latent. you know expressions of the soil back to the terroir thing and to me a very significant thing um and this always stops the naysayers in their tracks my farming costs are 20 percent lower than my conventional neighbors once we got to this point where we hit Really good vine health and vitality and consistency in the vineyard. We found that our um, our incidence of disease started getting lower. Like for example, last year a lot of people had trouble with uh, botrytis in uh, September. Be- conventional growers because we had some rains and whatnot, and we didn't have it because the vines were healthy. The skins were thicker. The leaves were you know thicker and healthier. And uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know why, but we, you know, we do these practices and we seem to get healthier vines. So it all takes care of itself. So I can have fantasies in my own mind of how these might work, but I don't, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to say I understand this and I know how it works. I think that, you know, maybe 100, 200 years from now, people will look back and go, wow, that those people were ahead of their time. They were using practices that, uh, that are really make a lot of sense now. I think Steiner was way ahead of his time and was able to translate some very uh, far-reaching modern practices into these clearly defined simplistic, uh, seemingly simplistic things that we do with all these composts and stirring and this and that. Um, but the the bottom line is they work. So who am I to yep. argue with it? My job is to make <laughs> wine, you know, not to be a researcher. So they work. Yeah. Now you said
0: twenty percent lower farming costs is. Yeah. I'm just gonna f- flip that over and say, are there additional costs that that detract from that due to sort certif- the certification costs, the time and energy, and and actual you know costs of certification for biodynamics and organics?
1: Uh, you know what's it cost me? I'm thinking the actual costs of certification, the licensing fees, and all that. Yeah, maybe it's twenty dollars a ton, which is negligible, um, right. in terms of our practices. You know, when I say my farming costs, I mean everything from every drop of diesel to every hour that's spent to every tool that's purchased. That counts everything. We have a good accounting yeah. system, so there are no hidden costs that that make biodynamics more expensive. There, yeah. there is well, there is one, and that is the the attention of the grower, you know, the old right. saying, you know, the best fertilization is the farmer's footprints. We have yeah. to be attentive. We have to be out in the vineyard. We have to train ourselves to see what the plant is telling us about its health or ill health. And right. those are things that you skills, you have to develop at the same time. So you have to become a better farmer or a more attentive farmer and almost a more intuitive farmer where you're in touch with the life of your plants more so that that is a cost but you can't monetize that i don't think and i'm actually happy to have that skill you know
0: yeah well and i i mean i've heard that as an argument you know against organics and biodynamics is that you know it requires so much more hand-holding of the vines which means more labor etc and i'm like well great so in other words we're creating jobs you know we're we're we actually have more people that can be employed more of the time in this occupation. Is that, do you think that's a a fair comeback to that?
1: Yeah. Well, and to even more so, not only do they have jobs, but we, we see that in our, our permanent uh, vineyard crew, they're um, they're so into it, you know, they're proud of their work they're not just going out there and spraying some spray or you know tilling up the edges of the vineyard or mowing or whatever they're engaged in creating quality of fruit they're engaged and have a relationship with these vines that they work every year they know every block every vine you know our our vineyard guys i think the average tenure is over 20 years you know they oh, wow. love working in this vineyard, and they and they feel really proud when we pull in um you know the crop. so there's a level of satisfaction that you get out of farming this way that I don't think you, as a vineyard worker, you know, by the hour or whatever, you wouldn't ever get in conventional farming
0: right, so. What is the best, what have you found to be the most effective way to educate consumers about biodynamics? Is there a magic bullet or does it just involve a lot of individual conversations?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, one of the things we're doing at Demeter right now is we're in the in the throes of creating a um, what I might call a trade association that would be uh, charged with bringing awareness of the value of biodynamic farming and of the products to the consuming public. You know, and there's in Europe, there's Demeter certified products, especially Germany and Northern Europe. They're so highly prized. They're struggling to find enough product to get into the markets. I and mean, it's viewed as the gold standard. If you want quality uh, that you go to a Demeter product, we don't have that awareness in the U S so we need to, we need to start um, working on that. I think wine uh, has an opportunity to be in the forefront of that because as I said, you know, the quality of wine is so highly scrutinized and not only quality, the character is highly scrutinized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not a marketer, I'm a grower and a winemaker, but I know that there's an opportunity to, uh, to start spreading the word and letting people know that this is actually something effective and special and worth uh, looking for when you're buying a bottle of wine.
0: So you're living the dream as a winemaker, I, I You have the luxury of not having to also be a marketer at the same oh, time. Oh, believe me. I,
1: I, <laughs> I was a platinum airline guy for a lot of years, you know? I did a lot of travel all the time. Now I'm getting to a point in my career when, you know, I can do Zoom meetings and uh, phone calls and I don't have to go around so much and I just assist our, our very talented salespeople, so... <laughs> but I, I, I've been there.
0: <laughs> yeah. A um, couple last questions. So, you know, Oregon is really kicking ass when it comes to biodynamics, organics in general. I'd say they're probably, I, I don't have the exact statistics, but I'm pretty sure that they're, that Oregon is the best statistically of all the states in in the U.S. in terms of the percentage of vineyards that are being farmed organically or biodynamically or both. It is. And then whatever yeah. other certifications, live and salmon safe and all the, mm-hmm. all the other ones. Um, I feel like Washington right across the border has got to be one of the worst. And I'm wondering, I mean, arguably it has a better climate, drier, less pest and mildew pressure in the East Washington. What's going on there? Why aren't more vineyards organic or biodynamic in Washington.
1: Well, the bulk of viticulture in Washington is eastern Washington, where people would convert from apples or cherries, you know, and you know, hundreds of acres, thousands of acres, wheat, whatever. Uh Mm -hmm. so they were they were their mindset was embedded in conventional agriculture. Uh herbicides, you know, pesticides, whatever, just the tools, the normal tools. They don't think beyond that. You so know there's you a, like, a
0: cultural cultural tradition sort it of, is. of and of,
1: eastern okay. Washington you know is much more conservative in its outlook on life and slower to change and, and that's where most of the grapes are grown you know there are some people in eastern Washington doing some amazing things and having great success with biodynamics you know Oregon yeah. started um, kind of like on a burgundy model with smaller vineyards and a lot of people came to this industry from other industries uh, and they were a lot more open-minded and, um, and Oregon's kind of a green state anyway. So we had that, that value in our state gestalt, if you will. Um, So It it was adopted a lot more readily here than in Washington, but I agree with you. Washington has great potential. I love the one Washington and the one too. That's what, yeah. And the ones that are That's far- the most
0: frustrating thing for me is I, I, every wine I've had from there, I'm just like, oh God, you know. I mean, I think they've got California beat when it comes to, yeah, you know, Bordeaux varietals. I think yeah. they're kicking ass with Rhone varietals as well, and and I want to drink more of it, but I'm pretty strict about not supporting yeah. non biodynamic organic viticulture. So it's like it's i I've cursed. Can't the thing that I like I can't have.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe I ought to get myself on one of the uh, the panels in the next year or so up there because I, I attend their their grower meetings and whatnot. I find them interesting. They have great research people at the universities, so I don't. Know.
0: Excellent, yeah, yeah. What big ideas are you fascinated by right now? What have you been geeking out about viticulturally speaking, or you know, wine wise?
1: Well, viticulturally speaking, this this whole notion of maximizing the relationship between the microbiome in the soil and our vineyards. You know, we've moved away from any opening of the soil at all, except for some, some seeding for cover crops and whatnot, really trying to build up, uh, you know, biology in the soil providing the nutrients for that biology and, you know, balancing that out with the needs, nutrient needs of the vines so that we don't have weeds growing up into our into our vines and things like that. So that's a, it's an interesting change in the last couple of years, not without its challenges, but um, I, I, I'm excited about that. And also, you know, what does that mean in terms of uh, irrigation needs, nutritional needs? How do you find that balance? So uh, every, even more than ever, I'm. I'm like looking at the vines really carefully. What are you telling me? Are you getting what you need? You know, what's my cover crop doing for me? Uh, I don't know. I, I find that really interesting. I, I look at it as we create an ecosystem that we've inserted this vine into. And how do I maximize that relationship? So I'm getting what I need. And at the end of the season, the whole system is healthier than it was at the beginning. So that's that's what that rings my bell, you know. Um, these relationships between vines and mycorrhizal fungi, for example, are just one story that I think there are thousands of that we don't know about. And I want to learn more in the cellar. I, I find that it's getting easier and easier to make good wine. I don't make the wine. I just kind of oversee the team. And um, the you know, the, the, the fruit is just more, much more giving. We're, we're dropping off, you know, delivering, quality fruit at the door better and better every year. So that makes that job easier. And we're finding that when we had struggled in years past with stuck fermentations and whatnot, you know uh, we don't have that, you know, I look at, I measure kind of our success of growing in our juice panels. You know what I mean? When I say juice panel, it's a, it's an analysis of the grape juice and you look at all the nutrients that are available for the yeast coming in in the juice and I measure right. my success. like how, how nutrient rich is this juice for those yeasts that we want to do the work. So we're trying to make that connection from the field into the, into the fermenter. And that stuff kind of jazzes me.
0: That's great. And have you seen those like, YAN numbers increasing and at, yeah. over time or?
1: Yeah, That's they have. Yeah. And another cool thing, while we're on it, you know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> how do you impact the character of the wine, you know, in the glass through viticulture? Over the last ten years, we've been able to drop the pH of our Pinots a full point one point one five, which is really significant. Um, oh, that wow. changes the color it changes the aromatics it changes the need for sulfur lowers the need for sulfur to keep things stable um that was that's a real big that's a real biggie and that has to do with balancing the minerals that are available to the vines you know so it's simple yeah. powdered rock dust sprays you know mixed in with the with the the sprays that we normally put on just simple stuff like that we've kind of experimented with and found what worked so that's just another way that we hit the ultimate goal of improving what's in the glass
0: so you're picking around the same time at the same sugar content and and the ph is is lower
1: yeah yeah wow yeah
0: and i didn't even think you guys would have a problem with ph and (laughs) <laughs> where you're growing I well, mean we compared you know, to California.
1: Yeah we, have example, pretty high, we're, yeah. we have pretty high potassium levels in the soil and kind of lower okay. magnesium Got and calcium. It. So we, you know, we needed to get that all balanced out.
0: Got it. Okay, great. Well, this is all fantastic. And I guess just in closing, do you, what are some, where are the, what are resources that you'd recommend to others who want to learn about biodynamics and how can they, you know, how can they learn more about you and Montanor? online or otherwise?
1: Well, on the last question, that's an easy one. Uh we have a good website that tells tells the story well. Um, Great. The Demeter, DemeterUSA.com website is, um, is a good resource on a lot of stuff, a lot of good things. And also the Biodynamic Association of America, or BDA, um, has um, a really good website. They're more geared towards education. And then the other one is the Josephine Porter Institute, um, jpi.com. They have a really good collection of of a newsletter and books and publications, you know, if you really want to dive into it about the how-to and the why and all that. Um, And also Steiner Books has a a really great collection of works if you want to go right back to the source. Um, Reading Steiner's um, agriculture course is difficult.
0: Uh, <laughs> That's what I've heard. Yeah,
1: but there's books <laughs> about it that are much more easily absorbed. So uh, exploring those those resources, you can find a lot. I, I think the Biodynamic Association, even if you just join, it's a minimal amount of money per year. They have a really good quarterly um, magazine, so to speak, that comes out with a lot of good articles. And, so it's out there. I love it.
0: Yeah, if I can, I'll put in a plug for the Demeter website. Where one of the features that I love is Uh, the map the interactive map where you can zoom in on any part of the world to see who is certified uh, biodynamic in that area and what that specific certification is it's a fun thing to interact with especially as somebody who buys grapes i get to like i can actually just you know pan around california in my area and look for people who are growing by dynamic and find, you know, exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and then what I love about, if I'll put a plug in for the Montenor website, I love your urine by dynamics, the, uh, sort of breakdown of month by month, everything uh-huh. that's going on in the vineyards, um, cool. from, you know, all the things that you're doing, that's a fun little thing that I enjoyed reading through as well. That's a, just a great overview of what, what it's like. Uh, and uh, so, uh, Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much, Rudy. I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation, rich with so much good stuff, and I really appreciate your candor. You know, taking on some of the tough questions, and and uh, I really really enjoy your thoughts. and And I think we're we're talking to the source right now, so it's really great to to hear it from from you. Um, thanks thank so much.
1: Thank you, you right. for having me.